Welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Our guest today is Dr. John Hughes, West Point class of 1996. And we'll get into a little bit more of John's uh, background here in a minute or two. Uh, but first, I want to thank L. Todd Wood, our executive producer, and CD Media for providing the platform for our interview today. I also want to thank retired Navy Captain Brent Ramsey, the producer for this episode. So a little bit about Dr. John Hughes. As I mentioned, Dr. Hughes is a graduate of the class of 1996 from West Point, but not just a graduate. He was number one in his class of 936 peers, which is no uh, trivial matter. Uh, as I'll mention a little bit later, he's in good company. Douglas MacArthur, class of 1906, was number one in his class, and Mike Pompeo of recent uh, fame and uh, celebrity status was also number one in his class. So that's no small achievement. Uh, Dr. Hughes started out in the infantry. He was trained as an airborne ranger, uh, did air assault, and he served as a flight surgeon. His awards include three bronze stars, uh, which are notable because that requires combat to earn uh, such a distinction. But what impresses me more than anything about Dr. Hughes is his interest in what's happening in our nation at a strategic level. Aside from his medical practice as an emergency room physician, uh, he's written extensively about a lot of the issues that confront our nation today as we speak. Uh, for example, he's presented papers at professional conferences, uh, that were technical uh, based on his medical training and experience. But he's also written uh, in other avenues as well. To give you a flavor, here's the title of one of his articles. Lieutenant General Williams's USSMA established 2020, the academy is not the problem, the leadership is. Open letter to the long gray line published on CD Media. But a couple of other articles that I found particularly striking were West Point signals lying, cheating, and stealing okay, religious freedom not okay. That was published in a relatively new uh, journalist platform called Armed Forces Press. And another article, will the West Point superintendent show courage and do the right thing? Question mark. That takes a lot of courage to... Uh, confront an individual such as a superintendent of the United States Air Force Academy, which, by the way, General Douglas MacArthur also had the privilege of serving as a West Point superintendent. So with that as a, as a, a light and brief background of our guest today, I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Hughes, to another episode of The Intellectuals. Hi, good afternoon, Ron. I'd like to thank you very much for having you on your show. You bet. Uh, some kind of uh, light questions to give our audience a, a better background for you. Uh, how does one go from being a trigger puller to becoming a lifesaver? What prompted that significant change in your career choice? Well, it was actually kind of a natural progression. Um, I always wanted to go to West Point. Um, my grandfather went to West Point, class of 19, I'm, I'm a 40. He was in the ploys to oil raid squadron commander, World War II. My father was in the 1960s. He was a Vietnam veteran. Um, I grew up on military bases my whole life. And so it was kind of a natural progression. 
And to be honest, when I went to West Point, I didn't have the intention of being in the medical field. Um, I actually wanted to be in the infantry. That's what um, that's what boys dream dream of as far as the military goes. And then while I was there, I got interested in medicine. My father was a doctor as well in the army, and so it seemed like a natural choice to go do, because um, because kind of kind of watching him and what he had done in his career. Um, but there was a point towards the end of my um, tenure up at West Point, though, where I saw that. It's a very different thing to be an infantryman and to lead than it is to be a doctor, although there are a lot of leadership opportunities in military medicine as well. Um, but I saw an opportunity when I was, was up there to do a little bit of both. And so first I secured um, entrance into medical school, and then I pleaded my case for them to, to give me a deferment for a few years um, so I could go, go lead our great troops. And so at that point, in the, in the mid-1990s, it was a natural place to, to go to was the Airborne Infantry. And so um, I graduated, went to Ranger School, Airborne School, and I was, was in the 82nd Air, Airborne Division. I deployed to Haiti with them as an infantry officer, and then I came back, and then I went to medical school after that. Well, that's a, a, a pretty major jump, you know, wanting to serve in the infantry out of West Point and then finding a calling in, in the medical field. Unless I missed it, uh, what what was the spark or the uh, the inspiration for making such a, a major change? Well, part of the major change was just what I wanted to do in the long term. Um, I kind of had an interest in both, and actually, military medicine was kind of nice. And I, and the way timing works out through history, I got to do a little bit of both because I got to deploy both as an infantry officer. Um, it wasn't, um, it was a peacekeeping mission. So to be fair, um, the war hadn't begun just yet, but, but it was still, it was still an interesting time deploying to Haiti and then in the war um, to being a doctor overseas. Well, now we had mentioned in your bio <clears throat> introduction that you graduated number one in your class. Uh, having graduated from a sister service academy, one a lot uh, more junior tradition-wise than West Point. Uh, I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1973, but I have to tell you, Dr. Hughes, I worked pretty hard and I was grateful to graduate in the middle of my class. And some people said at the top of your class, if you look at the, at the bell curve, I was definitely at the top of that bell curve. Uh, so in a way I graduated at the top of my class, but I was an average student. So I understand the huge difference in achievement between the middle of the pack and number one. So what was it that inspired you to, uh, to reach that kind of an achievement? To be honest, um, my graduating rank at the end was a little bit of a surprise towards the end. Um, when I went to West Point, um, like you and most, um, my inspiration was just to be the best I could be going to West Point, taking advantage of all of the opportunities over there. I grew up in the military culture where um, and, and, and everything that we did, whether it was Boy Scout sports, um, I'm, I'm going to West Point, the expectation was to do your best. And so as it, as it, as it turned out towards the end, I just happened to be towards the top. And that actually was nice because it, um, it kind of made it easier to do the transition point that, um, that I was wanting to go do. Well, I, I, I think without having said it, what's pretty explicit in what you're talking about is <clears throat> the notion of excellence striving for it. And you obviously did to graduate number one in your class. So it is no surprise now that meeting you over 20 years after graduating from West Point, I see an individual, an American citizen, a patriot, 
who is still pursuing excellence in your endeavors and your articles that you're writing, letters to the superintendent, whatever. And I think that's a real tribute to what virtue is all about as an American citizen. So I, I commend you for what you are doing there, Dr. Hughes. Uh, but I want to point out that as we kind of alluded to, but maybe it wasn't noted, you had four combat tours in the Middle East, one in Iraq and three in Afghanistan. So you were there, boots on the ground. So can you share with the audience what that experience was like as an American citizen, as an American soldier? Well, it was kind of a complicated experience. Um, I come from a long lineage of, um, of military officers and military personnel in our country. Um, my family lives on a, on a farm in rural Virginia um, where, where it goes back to before the, um, the, um, the, the American Revolutionary War. Uh, my ancestor, Ensign Hughes, fought in the Revolutionary War, Civil War. My great-grandfather was in World War I, World War II. And so um, I kind of grew up, if you will, living folklore and mythology of what the, the family had done for our country. And so I honestly couldn't wait when I finished West Point to go and do the same. Um, when I um, did the transition from from being in the infantry to being a doctor, I had a slight pause for about um, seven years because you had to go to medical school and then you had to do your residency training after that. And during that time, a lot of things happened in our country. Nine one 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 happened. I was in medical school actually in Washington D.C. Um, we were all wanting to go run down to the, to the Pentagon and go help because that's what what we did. Unfortunately, our time was not um, ripe yet to go do so. Um, so we had to wait our time a little bit. As I was going through my post-medical school um, um, skill sets to become an emergency physician, it takes about two or three years to go do that. And during that pause is when the Iraq war began and then Af Afghanistan began. And there was a time there where I came very close to dropping out of residency um, so I could go in the end of the fight because I just couldn't wait. Um, I wanted to make sure that 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 I did my part for my um, family and my country and what was 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 going on. Cooler heads amongst my mentors prevailed, and they said, "This is going to be a long fight. You just wait." And so they were actually right because by finishing residency, um, I, I offered a greater skill set um, to the units I was with as an ER doctor um, versus versus a general medical officer, and I think it paid um, dividends. Um, when I deployed overseas, my first tour um, was in Iraq with the um, um, with the um, with the Fourth Infantry Division. We were just east of Bakuba in a place called Little Iraq, where we had um, a combination of everything in Iraq that that you you could think of. We we were trying to fight against um, was there. Um, Elzar um, um, if you remember him, he was the one who beheaded all those folks um, when I was in medical school. Um, he um, he was killed just a few, few miles away from where I was. But it was kind of an eye-opener to the reality of what the world was and then what it also meant to be a soldier in the military. And it, and it also took it to a more personal level as a doctor because my role was to prevent death. Um, I had trained, honestly, to, to, um, to learn how to kill people and to lead people in combat as an infantry officer, you know, to close with and destroy with the enemy. So it's almost like the Terminator move, uh, movie. I have more detailed um, files to, um, to kill you, right? So... Um, so as a physician, I took that very seriously, taking my past knowledge, and it also gave me more of a camaraderie with those I was um, fighting with, because the, the troops I was trying to save in combat were, 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 um, were those who I had been with as, as, a, as an infantryman just a few short years before. Um, 
And that was an honor I did not take lightly. After every single, every single engagement in the Trump trauma room where we had casualties come in, after we were done, we would do other group and I would do a personal AR for how did we do? What can we do better the next time? Because it was a harsh realization too that um, is the mash, um, I'm a TV show, I'm a said, there's two rules in war, young men die. And number two is you can't change rule number one. Well, I thought I could buck the trend and we did the best that we, we could we could do. But I took it personally over there, um, <coughs> saving the lives of our troops. And for the first deployment over there was actually kind of interesting too, because I had a boss who was also a fellow West Pointer class of 19, I believe 86, um, O'Brien Jones, fantastic commander. And I wish he'd gone on to be a flag officer, but he took the war very um, seriously where he was. And he was kind of given in retrospect, kind of a bad hand. And that in 2006, that was when the war was quote unquote winding down. I was told from um, the civil affairs, they were, they were disengaging. As you know, the war went on for years beyond that. And this is when I began to see what was going on in the military's um, leadership at the ground level. I was just a junior captain back then, but our company, our, our brigade commander, um, current um, Colonel Jones tasked us as his special officers, uh, AKA the doctors, the um, signal corps, the, um, um, the, 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 the logistics officers who, um, who, um, who worked under his command to not only work for our troops, but to also help to build the capacity of the Iraqi army. And, and I began to see a lot of disconnects between what was going on on the ground and what we were being told from higher up. At the time I was so busy they had pulled a, um, an entire hospital out from under us. So it was just me who was doing the initial um, the treatments for, well, me and our, and, our, and our troops for an entire Iraqi division had to come through us um, effectively. So we saw tons and tons of troops. And for a, for a young doctor, that was a fantastic experience in that sense. But it was also a brutal experience because you get to see the, the true real, um, harsh um, reality of war. Um, but getting back to, to, to the other piece, it began to plant a seed of what is actually going on at the leadership level and and truths. When I went to West Point, we were trained just like at the Air Force Academy. And I, and I have a soft place in my heart for the Air Force Academy too. I married um, somebody from the class of um, 1998. My grandfather um, was one of the initial um, um, officers who went from the Army Air Corps to, to the Air Force. And my grandmother used to be um, 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 one of the employees at the initial Air Force Academy on when it first opened. Um, so I have a lot of personal ties over there too, but we're all we're we're all of the same mindset though, where integrity and honor are very important. And I began to see very early on in Iraq, and then when I then when I crossed over to Afghanistan, what was going on on the ground was not the same as what they were briefing to us, and more importantly, what they were were were, were briefing back to the Americans back home again. Um, so I did my tour, didn't reflect on it as much as I would, would have liked back then. And then I transitioned over to a special forces unit. Um, and then I went back to Afghanistan, the other white meat, as I call it, over on the Western half, over on the Helmand in that, in that area over there. And I saw much more of the same. It was inspiring working with the um, troops. It was a slightly different role. I wasn't doing as much um, direct casualty care. Although I was a black cloud everywhere I went, it seemed like folks were getting injured around me. So I still had um, plenty to do over there. Um, but I got to see a lot more of of what our warriors were actually doing on the front lines they were that they were putting their all into everything that they were doing over there and then year in and in, in year out i was there 2007 8 9 and then i came back in 2013 with the british army on the field hospital and it was the same bat, um, the battles in the same districts against the same foe 
and the same casualties going to the same place. And it just began to get, get, get a little bit um, frustrating and weigh on me. Um, so to get to the end of it, when I got back from my final tour over there and I came back to see how the military back home was, at least in the medical community, was looking at the war and the big picture of the war and how we were going to win this war and how they, they really weren't um, they really, really weren't showing the integrity to the effect that they sh should have at that point. I began to have a crisis of confidence in what, what I actually wanted to do. When I went to West Point, I wanted to be um, a general officer. I mean, I'll be straight up with it. All my all my ancestors served until the military kicked them out. <laughs> I'll just um, put it that way. And so um, I had no intention of getting out early, but at a certain point, um, I couldn't in good faith um, keep going on. And I, and I, re and I re realized um, soon after I could actually do a lot more good for the military out of the military um, than I could inside of the military. And here we are now. And to be honest, I think now I'm actually doing, at least in my opinion, as a, as a physician anyway, um, doing more for the good of the service academy country and our warfighting spirit that, than I did at that at that time. Well, now you, you got out, I think, at the 19-year point uh as a lieutenant colonel now was that early retirement or uh, um i got out actually at the 15 year point um, um when you when you go to medical school there's a strange pause button where you're in the reserves for um, four years um so it was actually um 15 years but they threw a penny at you where if you went uh, um to actually 20 years they would throw the extra years after so it was about i'm um, a 15 years i had been a lieutenant colonel for about two years at that point okay now you talked about uh, what was happening on the ground was different from what was being briefed at the upper levels. What do you think accounts for that difference? I think a lot of it is a slide in the integrity of the leadership of the military. Um, I'll stay away from the non-military arc of, of that because I, I don't have as much knowledge of that. But as far as the military piece of it, what we're seeing and what this organization stands for, STARS, is exactly the same thing that 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 that, that, I, that I was observing over there, and that I was going increasingly frustrated against. Is you have the military is saying that this is what they're supposed to be doing, this is what their goals are, but there's a supreme disconnect on the ground. The lack of integrity with how the war was going in in Iraq and Afghanistan for the longest time is the same thing that we're seeing up at West Point now, for example, with the vaccine mandate and the critical race theory issue up there. They're saying it's not happening, um, but it is. And we have proof of it. So this is where, this is this is where the big the big question comes up. This um, when exactly did this transition happen in the upper levels of our military? And the answer is not clear because it didn't it didn't happen just in the last year or two. But I think a lot of the problems that we're having now began actually back then, where you have a lot of um senior lead, leaders, and this is um, heresy to say at my level, I'm a level. I was only in 05 at, at the end, but I think a lot of those who were in charge then and those who are in charge now do not take their duty um, seriously in terms of what their ultimate, their ultimate, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I got to pause for, 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 for just a moment over here, but um, hopefully Todd can edit this, this piece of it out. Hope um, these, um, sorry, I'm blank, blanking on a, on, a, on a word to use here. Well, it sounds like you're talking about what their yeah. moral obligation yeah. is. Yes, a, yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry, is, I'm coughing call, call this morning here, but um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, it's, we're, we're talking about something very heavy. Yes. Um, and I'm going to ask you a question about a, a movie starring Russell Crowe here in a second. But I want to tee it up with 
Okay. The Air Force Academy has accepted or adopted three honorary graduates in its 60 plus year history. The class of 1959, the first graduating class, inducted Dwight Eisenhower as their first honorary classmate. Then it was John F. Kennedy for the class of 1964. And then the third one was my class, 1973. And we inducted Brigadier General Mal Waken, who was with the Academy from its earliest days as a professor of philosophy. And his dissertation at the University of Southern Colorado was a theory of obligation. So when you were searching for what to, to label what you were getting at, it made me think about General Waken. And he's got a book out called Integrity First. And it just struck me as really kind of crude that the Air Force Academy, under their one book, one use SAFA program, issued a, a very controversial book written by George Takei. And the title of it was They Called Us Enemy. And it was a cartoon book. It was a graphic novel. And at the very end, he was very anti-former president, very much in favor of open borders and, and whatever. And this was the book issued to every cadet in that entering class. And I'm thinking, what a travesty when they could have issued Integrity First by Mal Waken. Uh, which leads me to the next point, and that's this movie starring Russell Crowe, The, the Gladiator. <clears throat> After they had de defeated the German horde and had pretty much uh, conquered all of the uh, uh, opposing forces in the Russian or the Roman Empire, uh, Marcus Aurelius summoned General Maximus to succeed him. And in that conversation, in that tent, Marcus Aurelius asked Maximus, what is Rome? And Maximus had never been there. But the idea of Rome, what is Rome? And Maximus had a clear sentiment about Rome, even though he'd never been there. And when he was describing that, it made me think of America. And when you served four tours in the Middle East, you were serving America and what it stands for. And I, I just find it so powerful that a lot of times we think about these things, but we don't really drill down to understand the real essence of what it is that motivates and inspires us to do what we do. <clears throat> Whether it's boots on the ground, serving their nation, Rome, America, or if it's our political leadership, whether they're in uniform or not, serving a different cause. And, and I might be so bold to say power. They serve yes. power as opposed to seeking power to achieve a very noble end. So one of the things that, that really amazes me, Dr. Hughes, is our military peers those that have served a significant amount of time in our armed forces who have been in harm's way and are committing themselves, their lives or safety to serving what they think is good and what's important. Now, we're going to lose that if we don't find a way to keep educating the general population, which you are doing in your writing and your, the courage that you display in calling out the superintendent at West Point and other people. So I have to commend you for what you're doing. It's it's not seditious. <laughs> it's patriotic with a capital P. Uh, any thoughts on that? 
Well, I wholly agree. And this is one of those things where it, it actually pains me to write the articles um, that I write. Um, I'm humbled to have, um, to have increased the circle of acquaintances um, like yourself and those with stars who are, who are, who are like-minded folks, but it's um, troubling of the cause that, that united us to a common end. Um, going to West Point the whole time, um, and I'm sure like you as well, um, and being in the military as, as well, um, it gave me the ultimate um, sense of pride and being, and to answer the question, not not what is Rome, but what is America? Every time I put the uniform on as a cadet, and I was probably, I'm a ton of the extreme marching around the parade fields. I mean, I, I didn't, it was hot to stick on the, the uniforms and all that, but when I marched around the parade fields, when I was in the army um, with the units in uniform, whether it was an organized um, a parade or not, it was a sense of pride and connection um, with what was actually important. When I was a cadet, I used to spend a lot of time and I was an introvert and I, and I read a lot about military history. And one of the fascinating things I really liked about West Point was the history there. And I know the Air Force Academy is a little bit younger. Um, you, you, you guys will mature over time as you, as you, as you accumulate more in the um, cemetery there. Um, it's not your fault, you're just a younger academy. but. I used to go on runs and I would um, finish up and I would, would, would rock through this cemetery up there and I would look at tombstones of those that, that we would read about in the history books. And, that, and then I would look at those who weren't obviously in the history books, but they'd served the same um, common good and, and given no less of the ultimate sacrifice for their country. And it was always a, always a motivator to me so that when I went through West Point and served in the military and even beyond now, and it's even more important now, am I worthy um, to be an American? Am I doing everything that, that I need to do? And I had a special place too when I went to the cemetery too. My grandfather was actually buried there. He actually died of an infection after World War II. Um, he likely would have been a general. Shoot, in five years, he was a squadron commander 05 in the Air Force. I mean, think, think about that. I, actually, I'm, I'm a three years. He graduated 19, I'm a, I'm a 40, and in 1943, um, he was in the ploys to oil raids where one out of three planes was um, blown out of the sky. It was just humbling to see him there amongst everybody else and seeing where I um, fit in with this whole piece. And so this is circles back to what's the moral obligation that we have when we serve in the military. And I think the obligation doesn't go away. And one of the frustrating things I see, and this is actually another topic I would love to write about, is I find it very disheartening that it seems like the biggest um, friend of the military right now, those who are on active duty are those who no longer wear the uniform. And I think that's that, that that's a badge of sh shame that, that our current military leaders should be examining right now. Why is it that STARS and other organizations are having to look after the welfare of the troops who when they graduate from the, from the various academies and, or, and are already out of the, in the military they pledge their lives for the honor of our constitution. They know what Rome is, that they, they know what America is, and yet their leaders don't take care of them anymore. And it's those who no longer wear the uniform who understand that more than those who do wear the, wear the uniform. And I find that, that incredibly frustrating and um, troublesome. Well, one of the challenges we have, Dr. Hughes, is snark. <laughs> I hate to use that as a word, but it probably best describes a lot of the uh, angst and animosity and brutal talk that takes place. Uh, STARS really 
doesn't want to demonize or impugn people, even though we may be disappointed in what they are responsible for. You know, we'd like to think that they're doing this because they don't understand what they're doing. They don't really recognize how dangerous it is. And so uh, we don't wear religion on our sleeve. We're not an evangelical group, but we are grounded in our Judeo-Christian tradition. And it was just the other day that someone reminded me of Galatians 5, chapter 5. You will be known by the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so when I look at what's happening in our society today, that passage is just so relevant to what what we see happening. Uh, we There are a lot of good people out there that act with good intentions, but they don't quite realize, uh, many of them, that what they are an agent of or an instrument of is something that's very dangerous for America. What America is, what Rome is, what is it that we are willing to serve and fight for? And so it's unfortunate that we have pro-Americans and those that would like to destroy us. Uh, and somehow we need to identify those forces and call them out. Uh, like CRT and DIE, I, there's a lot of people that are celebrating this. In fact, I, we had the privilege of talking to a, an Air Force Academy graduate who right now is placed in a federal diversity and inclusion office. But he already understands how dangerous it is. And so I think he's trying to find a way to help it from the inside. And so STARS has been very blessed to be able to attract, you know, captains of our our various industries, yourself, I mean, very highly educated and trained, experienced, who recognize the issue that we're dealing with and are prepared to do something about it, which that's that's a feat in itself. I mean, a lot of people see something's wrong, but they don't have the courage to do something about it. So for our audience, what is it in particular about critical race theory that is most troubling to you, especially when we find it at our beloved service academies? Well, I find two things very, very um, troublesome with the whole, whole concept of it. Um, one is that they're trying to rewrite the history books to a narrative that they want. And throughout history, as you're well aware, you're a very learned man as well. Um, there's very few types of organizations or governments that try and achieve that end. And all of them are totalitarian in nature. You look at Marxism, Nazism, um, they try and rewrite it um, so it justifies the actions that they're currently taking now and to justify the society that they're in by destroying everything to everything in the past. The other very, very disturbing piece of it, I find, it, and it actually spills over into the medical community as well. And as I tell folks that I've also become very active in the medical community as well in terms of trying to fight the fight, as you say, and, and it's the same enemy. We're both f fighting DEI. We're both um, fighting critical race, I'm a theory, and we're both um, fighting this mentality, as you, as you say nicely, that it's not the people that, we're, that we're, we're going after, per se, it's the ideology. And in the medical field, the same thing is happening, that's happening in the, in the military field. They're embracing equity over um, equality and opportunity, but they're having but they're also overlooking the destructive effects, what they're actually doing. So within the medical field, what's happening right now is that 
and I've and I and I'm beginning to write a lot of papers on this in the medical community right now. If you if you look at the health issues in American society right now, um, a lot of it's obesity related. That that's always been the biggest um kill, um kill, color of all of all folks in the in the U.S. Even during um COVID, more folks died of, of of heart disease and all the related things than ever died from COVID. And then we have drugs. Opiates is one of my pet um peeves at the moment, especially being an ER doctor. Hundred and seven thousand deaths um, from from opiates or from um, drugs. Eighty one thousand of those from opiate deaths last year. Um, twenty years ago, it was um three thousand deaths. So that's a two thousand three hundred percent increase. And my community, I'm I'm an ER doctor. Um, toxicology and drug overdoses is squarely in our lane. It's our baby, if you will, right? And so our community is not even talking about it. Even moderators within our our professional organizations' websites are, are blocking commentary on that. There's nothing about it. All they're all they're they're talking about is the disparity of the health outcomes, and climate change. That's all that they care they care about amazingly. And how did this happen? It happened because of the same thing that's going on at the going on at the service academies, at the same things going on in our military. Is this um, is the ideology of wokeness, if you will? Wokeness is kind of a catch-all for a great many things. Um, but it's corrupting the establishment in its core values in its direction and it's going to have disastrous effects in the military we're seeing the recruitment levels are plummeting um they're they're not meeting quotas the morale is low and and i think um the numbers are very difficult to see because um the department of defense in my opinion is doing a good job of of hiding the data but we've seen somewhere upwards of fifteen thousand. Um, service members who have been tossed, many of them who have a lot of combat and leadership experience from the military for a vaccine mandate for something that's killed 96 folks and zero at the academies. Within the medical field, you see you see a lot of demonization of anybody who doesn't play the game. You see a lot of doctors leaving medicine, leaving major medical organizations because they're um, fed up with what's going on, but they're so intimidated. And on our side, it's it's almost just as vindictive, if not even more vindictive than it is in the military. You see a lot of state boards, you see, you see governing bodies, licensing bodies who still have censorship mandates out there against the doctors. There's still a few things that I still can't say in the media. I try and fight the fight where I can, but they, I still cannot say that the vaccine is poison. I could be be reported to the board. So I have to fight it in other ways with the mandates and, and other pieces there. But this is having um, disastrous effects because science and medicine, just 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 like in the military, is rooted in um, freedom of thought so that you get the, get the best ideas. Um, when I went through my military history classes at West Point, um, I, I had a lot of professors who had um, been cold warriors, um, a lot of experts in the Soviet bloc countries, and there were some um, funny commentaries they would bring up, and they were exactly right. These um, Vietnam veterans who were then um, colonels who were instructors. And some of these quotes went like, the Russian army used to hate um, fighting the Americans, or at least to prepare for, for World War III, at least in, in the 80s, because they said that the Russians knew our um, field manuals and how to fight better than we did. It's not that we didn't know how to do it. It's just that our folks were so were so dedicated to the fight they were intelligent and they had the and they had the um they had the room to maneuver intellectually to do what was right if the books said to do this but the russians were going to attack this way guess what they did the right thing and they did a different um a maneuver broke the rules and won the fight and the russians couldn't understand that in a totalitarian regime and the same thing in medicine is happening too you're having suppression of thought where you have hundreds of years of 
post-Reformation um, scientific method, all these things where you have all these um, ideas where, where, the, where the doctors are safe to, are safe to question medicine. Um, what's, what's worked, what's, what hasn't worked. Even since I finished medical school, much of what I was taught is no longer um, a dogma anymore. And, and that's because it's been changed. Now a dogma is whatever a, a, a certain small number of individuals at the highest levels say is dogma, and anybody who disagrees with them is, is guilty of misinformation. The same term we're seeing in the military, the same thing in the, in the civilian side. All the major medical organizations, if you go on the AMA's webpage, if you go on ASAP webpage, they have task forces to root out and to intimidate doctors about misinformation. So to circle back, the fight that, that I'm trying to fight in the medical community as well is the same fight that we're fighting in the military because the enemy comes from the same from from the same um, poison well. Well, Dr. Hughes, is this something Congress could take on with its uh, oversight responsibilities? I think in the military, unfortunately, that that's where where the oversight is going to have to come from, and the and the medical community medical community is not quite so um, straightforward there because a lot of the objectives that come from the national government do come from appointees and um, government individuals at the higher levels. And I think they, they could have some influence there. But the, but the problem with us is that it's so um, decentralized with um, non-governmental entities who license us. It's, it, I, I don't know quite, quite where to begin for how they're going to root out all the evils that, that have um, taken over in our groups. I would think that uh, Senator Rand Paul is one of them and one of your alumni, uh, Representative Mark Green, uh, also a physician, might be interested in hearing some of the stuff from the professional medical folks like yourself and what you're confronted by. Uh, there might be a way that they could, even if they may not be able to hold groups like the American Medical Association accountable, uh, the public could if, if they went and, and uh, took this into the public domain. Uh, so this is a, this is a, a needle that you have to thread. Uh, and so I can appreciate the challenges that you have because you need to protect your practice, your credibility and operate within the rules of the game, which may not be fair, may not be uh, grounded in integrity. So finding a way to do that is, is a challenge. Um, I, I commend you for being honest about some of those obstacles that you're confronted by. You know, I've read where uh, the medical industry was trying to decredential Dr. McCullough because of his uh, outspoken views on a lot of the same things that you're talking about. I don't think it's happened yet, but uh, they are talking about uh, taking his credentials away, uh, which I have to say, the research that I've done on totalitarianism in the 20th century, this is clearly an example of how it manifests. Uh, and if we're not careful, if we're not sufficiently uh, vigilant and courageous enough to stem it, we will become a totalitarian nation, society. So a lot of heavy stuff to talk about, Dr. Hughes. Uh, if we were to wrap this up, and if, if you were to close with an important message to our audience, uh, what would you say to them? 
most important message I can I can relate to the audience is the issue that our country ha is having right now um, affects just about every single segment of our society. And most of the people, even those who are on the side who are initiating all the all the un untimely actions against our society, our country, and our constitution. I think the vast majority of them do not believe in the evilness of their cause. I think a lot of them are sheep, them, but they go along. I think the, the power of social media is such um, that, that it's um, I'm, I'm blinding a lot of folks. But that being said, the small number of folks, just like any totalitarian um, society um, within the Bolsheviks, the Nazism of um, Germany, it was always a small number of folks who took over um, societies, even in Afghanistan, um, a country of the size and population very close to the state of Texas at any given time only had about 20,000 um, um, ta 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 um, ta Taliban warriors over there who controlled the whole the whole country, whether we said they, they did or not. And how does that happen? They do it through strength, but they also do it because they intimidate folks into being sheep. Um, as I tell my son, um, we have a few thousand folks in our in our in our neighborhood here with the ratio of that that's like two people taking over our entire hoa and our community in our community here by threatening folks with them letters at night if everyone stood up and they began to push back we have far more we have far more people from all sides of the political spectrum who do not believe in this poison and if they would just all stand up collectively and take our country back at every corner whether it's in the military it's in medicine it's at school board meetings holding schools accountable if everybody spoke up collectively, things would change. Virginia already sh showed us a pathway. Um, the parents had had enough, and they voted a Republican um, Congress or a Republican Republican governor. I mean, into there. Um, and it's not the fact that I'm I'm pro red, pro blue. Obviously, our ideals go likely towards a certain way, but it's about America and Americanism. And so if everybody speaks up and they do their part and begin to push back, we can take our country back. But it's going to take more than a um, that, than a small number of energetic individuals to do so. Great. Well, Dr. Hughes, we thank you for the effort that you're engaged in along those lines. And we want to let our audience know that uh, he pretty much summarized the mission for STARS, stand together against racism and radicalism in the services. Uh, it's an important fight. We believe in America. And we want to be constructive in ensuring that that we don't lose the uh, the great gifts that we were given by our founders uh, in establishing our constitutional republic. So, Dr. Hughes, I want to thank you again for joining us today. And now, do you have a website or uh, a platform that I do not yet? I'm a novice um, in, in, in terms of all that. Um, through Todd, um, Todd, um, Todd has been. I'm very, very gracious with this platform to help me to me to practice and to refine my voice. Um, I'm, I'm not quite certain where I'm going to go just yet, but from right now I'm piggybacking um, I'm in other entities, um, but I am proud to be a member of STARS and an active participant. Great. Well, we're honored to have you as part of that, Dr. Hughes. And I so for our audience, uh, you can uh, read a lot of uh, Dr. Hughes material at CD Media or the Armed Forces Journal. Anyway, thanks again, Dr. Hughes. Uh, we'll see you around the block. Okay, thank you, Ron. Right.